Good morning. How's everyone doing? Very good. Well, thank you for the privilege of coming this morning. My name is Marshall Walter. I'm the executive pastor at Grace Church in Simi Valley, and it is nice to be here. So thank you very much. Let me pray for us today, and then I got some things we'll talk about in the chapter at God's Word we'll work through, and uh, we'll just try to glorify Him together this morning. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for the truths that we have sung about. Uh, that, Lord, you have found a way to ransom us. Uh, that you were willing to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be uh, yours yet again. Lord, what a glorious truth that though our hearts are prone to wander, yet, Lord, you have sealed us with your Spirit. And therefore, we can rest secure in our relationship with you and we can look forward with hope and excitement uh, for the day when you return and make all things right and we are fully and completely restored to be with you and we get to spend eternity in the worship and service of you. Lord, we long for that day and pray that this morning would be uh, just a taste of that as your saints are gathered here together. In your name we pray, amen. Well, it is a, uh, a privilege to be here today, and I, I really mean that, and we are thankful uh, for the opportunity. I bring greetings from the church in Simi, and I uh, had a number of staff members and of people from the church there send hellos to all of you, and uh, I have told Eric, but I also wanted to mention uh, with all of you guys, it, uh, it really is just a sweet thing to see the way the Lord is working here, and I appreciate your faithfulness and just continued uh, ministry that you are doing here. And uh, I don't have tons of experience in ministry and decade after decade of experience, but in the time I have had, um, it's a rare thing to see the Lord go before us in a way that has gone this smoothly. And uh, if we talk about the last year and a half and the things that the Lord has accomplished and what he has done, um, it's rare that ministry is easy. And uh, that doesn't mean there hasn't been a lot of hard work or bumps along the way, um, but it's been very evident that God has been gracious and faithful here. And so just thankful for that, thankful for you guys and your continued faithfulness and commitments to him and to being a part of this church. I'm sorry if you're here visiting today, you got the B team or maybe depending on, I've heard good things about Michael and Mark both preaching, so it might be more like the C or D team um, this morning. But we are thankful to be here. I brought, this is my wife down here, Becca, um, in the green. She is with me this morning. Our friend Allie has come with us from Simi Valley as well. Um, our daughter Kay just took off. She was very excited. The last time we were here, there were no kids. And so she was very excited to have kids here. And our two-year-old is probably tearing up the nursery right now, so... Apologies for that, but we're excited to be here and also should mention this is um, Aaron Baker, our lead pastor, Jordan Baker's wife. He is away in Argentina right now and uh, we just coincidentally happened to be here at the same time. So she hadn't been out yet. She's got her daughters Morgan and Brenna with her and Lucy's in with the kids. So uh, we're excited to be here and thankful for the opportunity. And if you want to uh, grab your Bibles, you can, those of you that like to plan ahead, um, can flip to Psalm 101. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. I got a little bit of introductory material, so it's going to take us a little while to get there. Um, but you can stick a finger there and we're going to head that direction today. And uh, the title this morning is um, When Life is Hard. And uh, I don't know about you, but my experience has been that life is often difficult. And uh, the more I talk to people and interact with them and you ask them, how are things going? Um, nobody ever tells me that life is easy. Maybe you have a different experience. I get hard a lot or difficult or probably the most popular answer is that life is busy, right? That is what we say here in Southern California. Life is busy. And it at least is a Southern California thing, if not bigger than that. But my experience has also been that when life is busy um, and life is hard, that sometimes our relationship with the Lord can suffer. And I don't have a solution this morning, I'm sorry, to your life being hard and your life being difficult. That is uh, the way things go. We live in a fallen world. We are sinful human beings. Um, there is no solution to suffering at this point outside of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered so that we could be saved and calls us to suffer so that we would continue to grow in him and so that the gospel would continue to go forward. So no easy answers this morning. 
But my concern is that as we walk forward together in life and as we seek to serve the Lord, that our hearts don't grow cold, that they don't become lukewarm to the Lord because of what we're going through in life. I had the opportunity last month along with Eric and Michael and some men from CME to go to the Shepherds Conference at uh, Grace Community Church. And we were sitting in a, a session that uh, Pastor Mark Dever from Washington, D.C. was talking about. And there was a Q&A and some back and forth. And one of the younger men in the room asked, hey, you're, you're talking about discipleship and helping people grow and mature. What are the things that they need to do? What's the, the list of books they maybe need to read or the people that they need to meet with? Uh, that they would grow and that they would mature the right way. And I thought it was interesting. He paused and he kind of stopped for a minute. He goes, you know, it's been my experience that younger Christians and older Christians talk about maturity in a different way. Younger Christians tend to ask that question. What are the things that we need to do to keep growing? Younger Christians tend to think of maturity as, as growing, of somehow becoming more spiritual or, or, or leveling up in their Christian life. But he said older believers tend to talk about continuing. That because life is hard and because it's difficult, the conversation shifts to we've been through these things and we're still walking with the Lord. Christian life is about finishing. It's about enduring. And we want to be those this morning that seek to walk faithfully, not just for the moment, but for the lifetime. And when life is hard, it's easy for us to begin to drift. And it usually starts small. We maybe have just put our Bibles down for a while and not really read it. Maybe we've stopped taking things to the Lord in prayer. We're talking with with friends and complaining to others we know rather than taking things to the Lord. Our hearts begin to grow cold We begin to feel distant from the Lord. We've lost our passion for others. We've lost our desire to serve within the body of Christ. And we perhaps have stopped to prioritize life correctly. We've been distracted. We've been consumed with other things. And I think the Psalms are super helpful in these seasons of life. When life is hard and when it's busy and as we begin to struggle, the Psalms are a great resource for us to turn to. And, and for many of us, there are Psalms that um, hold a special place in our life uh, that we care deeply about. I know for me, they hold a um, very personal place. The Psalms was the after dinner thing my dad would grab as we did family devotions um, and that we would work through together and he would read one of those and we would talk about it. And so I thought this morning it would be appropriate uh, to jump into Psalm 101. And I always uh, hate the, the hardest part about jumping in like this. I wasn't here last week. I won't be here next week. Those are Eric's problems. Um, but the hard part is we're not working through the book of the Psalms together. And we're jumping to Psalm 101 this morning, not Psalm 1. And so we're literally parachuting into the book of Psalms two-thirds of the way through without any context. And so I want to give you just a little bit of context this morning. And in particular, um, the Psalms are tough because I, I think you're probably like me that we think of them individually. We tend to think of their Psalms we like, right? Like Psalm 23 is a favorite. Psalm 130 is one of my uh, favorites as well. And, and we tend to do them one at a time or a handful at a time and not look at them all together. And uh, there's been a lot of really good scholarly research the last few years, in particular uh, this last decade, about how do all the Psalms put together? How were they compiled? And what was significant about the way that they arranged them? And so I want to give you a little bit of context, uh, because I think it really helps us understand the background of Psalm 101 as we jump into it uh, today. You probably know the basics, right? I have, I have three questions. I don't know if Eric does this, but I'm going to ask for a little bit of audience participation. So you're going to have to engage with me. And all the questions are pretty easy, okay? There's no failing here. It's okay if you get one wrong. There are how many Psalms in the Bible? 150. Excellent. So see, we know the simple things, right? There's 150. The longest Psalm is Psalm 119. And this one's a little bit tricky. The shortest Psalm 117, Mark is on it, right? I prepped him ahead of time, right? (laughs) That's the one. You got to balance out 119 with 117 in your daily Bible reading, just so you don't have to plan in extra time. Yeah, we know the basics, right? And there, there are some simple things that way that we understand. There's at least eight authors of the Psalms. 
Um, there's a number of anonymous psalms. We don't know how many, but there's at least eight noted authors. It took over a thousand years for all of the psalms to be read, which indicates then there had to be somebody that compiled them at the end, right? And so that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. How did that um, compilation take place? And one of the things that you'll note is that there are five books within the psalms as a whole, right? You'll note that there are um, what we call superscriptions in our Psalms, and as you work through, there's a difference, okay, between um, if it's Holman or Crossway or whoever the publisher of your Bible is, they'll put titles in for the different Psalms or the different sections. But the superscriptions are actually um, part of the text. They probably were not written by whoever wrote the Psalm, but they're really like the earliest commentary that we have on the Psalms themselves. Right? They're the first scholarly work that was done to say, here's how this is being used in context. They're probably not inspired, but we can trust them historically that they have good information in them. And so these superscriptions show us that there are five books. The first book of Psalms is the first 41 chapters. Um, you'll note that when you get to chapter 42, your Bible in all likelihood says book two at the beginning of it. And the first book is predominantly about David. Of the 41 Psalms, 37 of them are noted as having been written by David. And in fact, one of the four that isn't is Psalm 2. And when Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts chapter 4, it says, David said back in Psalm 2. So there's even one of the four we believe really belonged to David. So 38 of the 41 belong to David. And generally, they are his um, pre-kingly psalms. They take place in his life and are connected to uh, different segments of time prior to him becoming the king. And they look forward and, and tell the story of how David came to power in Israel in the Old Testament. And then we get to chapter 42, and we move into the second book of the Psalms. And chapters 42 through 72 are the second book of the Psalms. And these are the latter half of David's life. It's after he's become king. And generally, again, maybe not exclusively, but generally this group of Psalms belongs in that period of David's life. He wrote, I think it's 18 of them. Um, in this section, 18 of the 31 are by David. And it's significant when we get to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is written by David's son, Solomon. And in Psalm 72, verse 20, it says that the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Solomon puts a um, conclusion to the first two books of the Psalms, saying this is the end of David's work. Uh, these two books kind of belongs to him, but we're moving on. And so the third book, uh, scholars believe, is Solomon's reign really up until the exile. And it's chapter 73 to 89, or book three of the Psalms. Um, not a lot of historical information. So we'll have Psalms of when David was at the cave of Adullam. Well, you don't have those kinds of historical footnotes in this last section. Lots of different uh, psalmists. The Psalms of Asaph are all in this section. Um, it's how the Psalms continued to develop. It's how they continued to worship and praise the Lord as the kingdom moved on towards the exile. We'll come back to Psalm 89 here in a minute. But when we get to 90, it's book four. Um, 90 through 106 is reflections from the from exile as the people consider God's faithfulness even though they were out of the land and apart from him. And then the last book looks forward. It is hopeful and exalting the Lord, rejoicing and reflecting in God's faithfulness for how he has and will deliver the people of Israel. Okay, so that's kind of the, the big panorama, right, in like three minutes of how all the Psalms kind of fits together. And I want you to flip with me real quick, turn back a few pages to Psalm 89. So I want you to see how uh, the third um, book ends because we're going to be in Psalm 101. That's in the fourth book today. And we're going to kind of walk forward to that so that we, we see some connections here of how this fits together. Psalm 89, if you start looking in like verse 38, it begins to talk about Jerusalem's destruction. And we are at the point where um, enemies have come in from Assyria and from Babylon and, and have come to destroy Israel and to take them away into captivity. And so the end of Psalm 89 that wraps up the third book walks through the downfall of Jerusalem, that the throne of David has now been thrown down, that God's covenant with Israel seems to have faltered. Here we are, God's chosen people, and yet we're being carried off into exile. And look at verse 49 with me. As this psalm wraps up, look at the question that is asked here by the psalmist. It says, 
Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which by your faithfulness you swore to David? This is the question that, that looms large in the whole fourth book of the psalm. God, what has happened to your steadfast love and to your faithfulness? We were your people and life is a mess now. Our land is gone, our city is gone, our throne is gone, and we are being carried off into exile. Is God still faithful in the midst of what I'm going through? And as you walk through the fourth book of the Psalms, we're just going to walk chapter by chapter here. I just want you to see what's happening. Psalm 90 and 91 and 92 go back and they are Psalms of Moses. They look at Moses in the Old Testament, right? The, maybe the closest parallel to the time of the exile was the time where Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And if the question is, what has happened to God's faithfulness? The compiler of the Psalms has arranged them in a way that says, go back and remember the life of Moses. Go back and remember God's faithfulness in bringing us out of the land of Egypt and how God was faithful then and how he established his covenant with us. As you flip through Psalms 93 and up to 100, each of those chapters, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, and 100, all of them at some point reflect on the sovereignty of God, that God still reigns on his throne. In the midst of what Israel was going through as they were carried off into exile, they remembered that God is still in charge, that he is still sovereign, that this is still something that he absolutely is ruling over. Psalms 101 to 103 reflect on the life of David. Similarly to the time of Moses, here are a couple more Psalms from David and how he dealt with, right, the man that sinned incredibly often and yet still was known as a man after God's own heart how did how was God continuing to be faithful to David Psalm 104 reflects that God's character has been the same since creation 105 reflects on that God's character has been true through his covenant to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses and through the exodus And Psalm 106 picks it up to say that God has always saved in the same way. He is always saved for his glory and for the sake of his name. And that was true at the Red Sea. That was true in Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. At Baal Peor, when Israel fell into idolatry and immorality. At Meribah, when they ran out of food and water during the conquest of the promised land. And all the way through the time of the judges, God has always been consistent. And if you look at Psalm 106, verse 45, the psalm answers the question of Psalm 89, 49. Where has God's, where is his steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Psalm 106, 45 says that the Lord remembered his covenant and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God always saves for his glory. God always acts in accordance with his character and in demonstrating his steadfast love. And so the proper response is seen in 106.47 that save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Our prayer today as we jump into Psalm 101 here together And as we work through the difficult seasons of life and the hard times and the things that we're struggling with is that God would act like he has always acted, that he would continue in his steadfast love, that he would be faithful to us just as he has always been and just as he was throughout the history of the Bible, that God would act to save us according to um, his name and for the sake of his glory. Amen. So turn with me to Psalm 101 and want to ask the question this morning, when life is hard and when we're struggling, how do we reset ourselves and how do we get back on track and return to trusting in the Lord in the right way? And I'm going to try to get you out of here on time. That's the goal. Eric told me anytime I was late this morning, he'd give you back next week. So you can hold him to that. So we have all the time in the world as far as I'm concerned. We're good. No, Psalm 101 today, and uh, three things. For those of you note takers, I'm going to give you three points right now. I'll try to circle back to them as we go. Um, But we're going to try to grasp the process of the gospel. Grasp the process of the gospel. That's the first two verses. We'll spend a, a chunk of our time here. 
as we grasp the process of the gospel. Then we're going to move into verses 3 and 4, and we're going to try to gain a heart of integrity. We're going to talk about gaining a heart of integrity in verses 3 and 4. And then we'll wrap up, we'll spend a little bit of less time on the end of the psalm, but 5 to 8 talks about guarding ourselves from future failure. Guarding ourselves from future failure. We'll try to work through these together. So look with me at verses 1 and 2 as we try to grasp the process of the gospel and learn alongside David here about how we keep our heart close to the Lord in these things. Verse 1 says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. As we grasp the, the process of the gospel, um, four subpoints that kind of go with this. The first one is that we encounter the character of the Lord. Notice what verse one says, and notice what the psalmist is going to praise the Lord for, for both his steadfast love and his justice. All of God's dealings with us, all of God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament flowed out of his character, that God is a God of steadfast love and yet also of justice. My uh, pastor growing up at a church in Oregon was named Scott Gilchrist, and he would share the gospel with people this way, that the gospel really is the story of how God's steadfast love satisfied his perfect justice. And that's what we understand the gospel to be, right? As we get to know the Lord and understand that he is a holy and righteous and good God, that we also understand that he is a God of justice. He is perfectly just. He is always just. And therefore, as we wrestle through in our own hearts and our own lives, the fact that we are not perfect and the fact that we do not glorify God in everything that we do, we recognize God can't just sweep our sin, sweep our failures under the rug. There has to be an accounting for that in his perfect justice. And because he loves us and because part of God's character is that he is the God of steadfast love, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. He bore our sin upon himself so that God's perfect justice could be rightly satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And God demonstrates his steadfast love to us in saving us and in redeeming us and providing a way for us to have relationship to him again. We can only be saved as we grasp these objective truths together. That it was God's steadfast love that satisfied God's perfect justice. And therefore, we have an avenue through Jesus Christ by which we can be saved. It is out of this understanding of the Lord's character supremely manifested in his son and revealed in our salvation that we are brought to the point where we can be saved and that we can respond properly. And that's what the psalmist does here in verse one, right? As we come to understand and encounter the character of the Lord, we respond in worship to the Lord. This is what he says. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. I will sing to you, O Lord, and I will make music. It is a natural response as we come to know the Lord and understand who he is, that we would respond in worship, that we would respond in praise. As we uh, come to appreciate more and more who God is, our hearts are transformed and the, the right and proper response, true worship, is not just being emotionally charged and, and dancing around and waving our hands. It's understanding who God is and responding in worship accordingly. We declare who God is and what he has done when we sing together. And it's natural and it's right that we should do this through song, right? We did it this morning. There's a, a reason there are 150 psalms. There are a lot of things to praise and to worship God for. When we sing together, we want to sing like we did this morning. Thank you. That we would sing God-centered songs. That we would praise God for who He is and what He has done, not who we are and how we feel. There's a right place for response, but the, the content of our praise is fueled by who God is. And we respond in accordance with that to worship Him, to praise Him, to encourage one another as we sing together. I don't care about the style. Okay, let me help Michael out here just for a minute, okay? You may not like the style of worship. Get over it. We worship based on the content. And when the content's not there, now we have a problem. Now we start to talk. Style is style. Style is preference. 
We'd all do it a different way if we were in charge of it. And so we rejoice when the music is centered on who God is. And we sing, listen, not because you're a good musician. Our worship has nothing to do with how good a singer God has made you or how good a musician God has made you. Worship responds out of a heart that's praising the Lord because of who He is and how He has transformed your heart and your life. And so we sing loud even if we sing off-key because we care more about responding correctly to what God has done through the Gospel than we do about offending the people around us and than we do about being embarrassed with the people around us. So we sing loud because we have a God that's worthy of being praised and of being worshipped. And as we sing, and as we worship, and as we praise the Lord, we do that both in the easy times and the hard times. Both in the things we like about God and the things that we're struggling with about God. The psalmist here says that he praises God both for his steadfast love, but also for his justice, the sweet things and the bitter things in life. And until we have really wrapped our arms around all of who God is, until we can praise him for both aspects of God's character, we haven't truly understood what he has called us to, and we haven't really learned to view our circumstances in life the right way. So as we grasp the process of the gospel, we encounter the character of the Lord, we respond in worship to the Lord, and we desire to please the Lord. Notice where he continues here. There's two statements that David makes in verse 2. He says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. And at the end of the verse, he says, I will walk with integrity of heart. His recognition of a new relationship with the Lord and of seeing the Lord the right way and of responding appropriately in worship in that is not just something between him and the Lord, but it's something that translates into the rest of life. There's a new perspective that he has on life, a new desire that he has to please the Lord in all things. Now listen, time out. Okay? We got to talk about David here for a minute. Because this is, this is an incredible couple of statements. That he would ponder the way that is blameless and that he would walk with integrity of heart. And I know, okay, there's a certain number of us here this morning that are David apologists, right? We love David, rightly so. Greatest king in Israel's history. Glorious man. Love the Lord. Known for being a man after God's own heart. But we, we have to acknowledge the purple elephant in the room. David was a terrible human being. Like, I don't know all of you. I know a few of you. I, this morning, I'll bet all the dollars in my wallet against all the dollars in your wallet. If David was here this morning, he would be the worst sinner in the room. Maybe all of us combined, okay? Think about it just, just for a minute, okay? Because this is an audacious claim that he is making to walk blamelessly and with integrity. And yet as we look at his life in First and Second Samuel, that wasn't how David lived. Read the story, but, but don't miss the point, okay? First Samuel's really good. But the point in 1 Samuel is not that David is blameless. It's not that he's perfect. God is showing that Israel chose Saul to be their king, but David was his choice. He's the the kid that wasn't even brought in to meet Samuel the prophet when he came to anoint people. He was left out in the field to, to watch the sheep. He's the young man that goes up against the giant and slays him. He's friends with Jonathan. There's all these great stories that we love about David, but it's not about David. It's about the fact that God wanted him to be king. And God is showing that he is worthy to be king over and above Saul who the people chose. Because this opposite point is made in 2 Samuel as we continue on in the story and as David's life begins to fall apart, the point is, and the writers of Scripture are showing us as great as David was and as much a man after God's own heart as he was he wasn't the king that Israel needed. They needed King Jesus to come. They needed the Messiah to come. They needed their greatest king to come. And so we watch David's life fall apart. We watch him have his Joab or his general be a man named Joab who would murder people without any kinds of consequence. We watch David order the murder of Uriah. We watch him um, commit sin that led to 70,000 Israelites being put to death by the Lord. You're a pretty bad leader when you make a decision that costs 70,000 people their lives 
needlessly. And his family life was a mess. All kinds of heinous sin going on. Rebellion, revolts, rape, incest, murder, disobedience, selfishness. Basically, all of his kids are bad or ended up dead except for Solomon. And Solomon was not a great king. He was the one that brought idol worship into Jerusalem because he had so many wives that he couldn't keep them happy without doing that. The story of David is a mess. And so are our lives. And the point is not that David was this great guy. The point is not that David's aspirations of being blameless or walking with integrity are wrong. They're very good aspirations. But David is a man that we love and a man that we respect because of what verse 2 says. That he not only aspired to walk blamelessly before the Lord and to walk in integrity before the Lord, but he understood his need for dependence upon the Lord. Oh, Lord, when will you come to me? Lord, without you, I can't do it. Without you, I can't walk in blamelessness. I can't walk in my integrity. Which is good news for us because we're messes just like David was. And we don't have the ability in our own strength to walk blamelessly, to walk in integrity, unless the Lord is going to come to us, unless he is going to be the one to empower us and to enable us to do it. We are desperately dependent on the Lord. And we need to recognize alongside David our complete inability to walk in the Lord's way without his help unless we're going to walk dependently upon him. Only then can we ponder the way of the blameless and can we walk with integrity of heart within our house. The first thing that we want to do is we seek to reset ourselves and get back on track when we're struggling, when life is difficult, is we need to grasp the process of the gospel. We need to encounter the character of the Lord. We need to respond in praise and in worship to him. We need to desire to please him and begin to demonstrate that in our life. And we need to recognize our dependence upon the Lord as we move forward. So if this is true for you, and I pray that it is and trust that it is, and you're seeking to walk forward with the Lord, then what are the other steps that we need to take? What are the things that we need to do? Our second point this morning, that we would gain a heart of integrity in verses 3 and 4. Read them along with me. David says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. The first thing that we see David do here is that he defines his desired outcome. He says, this is what I care about and what I'm going to do. Look at how verse 3 begins. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. If we are going to serve the Lord and if we're going to walk with Him, we don't find our joy. We don't find our delight in the wicked, worthless things of this world. We don't set our eyes on them. We don't aim for them. We don't pursue them. We don't allow them to go unchecked in our mix. We are committed to pursuing the right things because we want a right heart. We want a heart of integrity and therefore we're going to be careful what we seek after. Now time out number two. Here you get three of them in the game. This is number two. Okay? Listen, I don't think there's anybody here this morning that woke up this morning and said, Lord, I want to desire things different from you. I want to desire the worthless things of the world. Right? I, I can't imagine that you would wake up this morning, say that, and then come to church. That would be quite the thing, right? Our desires are subtler than that, yes? We're often um, slower in watching our desires change and watching what we're after and what we set our eyes on, okay? We aren't necessarily cold towards the Lord, but we move towards being lukewarm. We just stop prioritizing our relationship with the Lord. Right? Life gets busy. It gets hard. We have a lot going on. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say. Maybe we're distracted by other things. Sometimes often the, the good things, the so-called good things, it's not sinful. Maybe you are here this morning and you are living an ongoing act of sin and you need to repent. But oftentimes it's the, what he says here, the worthless things. He doesn't say the evil things. He doesn't say the wicked things. It's that our desires and our passions and what we are excited about is worthless. 
It has no eternal value. We are consumed with and busy and discontent with the things that the Lord has given us. We've bought into the wrong priority structure. We're busy trying to be good parents or good grandparents or running from one thing to the next, just trying to keep up in the busyness of life. And we have lost sight of what the Lord has called us to. Our desires are easily misdirected and we easily begin to value things incorrectly. And David says here in verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. He is single focused in protecting his heart. He knows the outcome that he wants. The valuable statement and a warning for us here this morning that we would not allow things to be placed before our eyes that are going to cause us to be drawn away from passionately loving and serving the Lord. What are the good things in your life that you have begun to delight in? What are the the worthless things unimportant things that have begun to distract you and have allowed your aim to drift from what God has called you to. As you have time this afternoon, flip through the book of 2 Samuel. Reflect on the life of David. David was a man of better ambitions than you and I and a man of bigger failures than you and I. It's what happens when worthless things get set before your eyes. We begin to drift and misery and ruin follow in that pathway. If we are going to have the goal of integrity and a heart of integrity, we need to make sure that we have defined our desired outcome. Secondly, we need to develop the right habits. If we're going to begin to cultivate that, and if we are convinced and have set the goal of having a heart of integrity, then we need to work hard to develop the right habits. Look at what the end of verse 3 says. It says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. My friends, we are to hate our sin. David uses the word hate there, the work of those that fall away, not the people that fall away. He says, I hate the work of those who fall away. I hate the work of sin in my friend's life. I don't want it in my life. How often are we lulled into complacency? Are we lulled into patterns of sin that go unchecked? How quickly do we rationalize and dismiss it? We are to be at war with our sin. We are to mortify our sin nature. Can you remember this morning, the last time that you got a little angry, a little hot under the collar about your own sin? David says, I hate the work of those who fall away. We need to engage. This is not playing good defense. This is going on the offensive. If we are going to have a heart of integrity, we have to go after our sin. We have to kill it. We have to mortify it and put it to death so it no longer has pull and sway over us. Can we honestly say that we hate our sin here today? David declares his hate for this sin and his commitment to not allow it uh, to cling to him. I I love this word picture of clinging, right? The idea of being sticky. I've used the analogy before, but it's just too good to pass up, right? I I don't know if um, you've played the game with your kids at some point where they sit on your foot and they want to ride as you walk around. And I don't know about your kids. Every kid I've ever met loves this game. And I, I just don't understand it, right? It can't be comfortable. It's not fast, not particularly enjoyable. And for whatever reason, we're, we're big, like first time obedience in our household. Like we say something and it's done. And if I want my kids to sin, we start playing this game because they don't want to stop right? They're hanging on and begging for more. Listen, sin is like that. Sin is hooked on, it is on for the ride, and it doesn't want to stop, and it doesn't want to let go, and it just wants to go one more time. Please, Daddy, one more time. Sin is clingy. It is apt to stick. And David says here that we are going to resolve to painstakingly kill that sin, to not let it cling to us to not allow that process to take place. And so if integrity is our goal, we're going to take active steps to plan how we will gain that integrity. We need to begin by developing the habit of killing our sin, and we need to determine to keep going when it gets hard. 
I think this is what verse 4 is talking about when it says, a, a perverse heart shall be far from me and I will know nothing of evil. The word perverse there is the idea of something that is um, twisted um, or warped. You think of a piece of lumber that's become twisted or, or warped in the way that it is. And, and David is recognizing that as he begins to deal with the sin in his own life and as he begins to try to put it to death, it's true in our own experience, right? That sin goes deep. And it twists itself into our way of thinking and into our actions and that it becomes all entangled and, and we are deceived about even how much of it is there. David says he is going to persevere. He is going to press on. He's going to keep going even when it is difficult, even when that, that sin is twisted in deep because he doesn't want that sin to be deep in his heart. He will know not just a little bit about evil. He will know nothing of evil. He is going to yank it out by the roots. He's going to get all of it. He's going to persevere for a lifetime in killing his sin and addressing it so that it is not there. We need to be those that keep going in dealing with our sin, that start the process and pursue it, that we might gain a heart of integrity. And so as we move to our last point today, we want to grasp the process of the gospel. We want to understand who God is, of how we respond in worship. We want to begin to desire to serve him um, as we move into our life. We want to um, begin to gain a heart of integrity, to set that as a goal to say, I really do want to walk blamelessly before the Lord. I want to do that with integrity. I'm going to discipline my life to deal with my sins so that I can begin to address those things and I'm going to persevere and I'm going to push through when that gets hard and when I don't want to and when I don't feel like it. And I'm going to guard myself from future failure. Guard myself from future failure. Verses 5 to let me just read them for us here. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked of the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Just two points here in these last uh, verses, and they're very simple. One is that we would know who to avoid. Verses 5 and 7 and 8 all speak to who David avoids. And then by comparison in verse 6, we need to know who to acquire. Two A's for you. Who to avoid and who to acquire and i'm gonna use my third one okay one more time out here's the danger of these verses and i think it's it's important that we just address this we have to be careful as we talk through this one because there's there's two sides of things and we want to try to split the middle on this situation as we talk about interacting with other people um, I think we all have a different disposition. We all have a different bent. And one of those is that we are overly protective and overly cautious, um, that we are too narrow in the way that we interact with others, right? This can be self-righteousness. This can be fear. This can be these people are too not like me and I, and I can't interact with them. It's too dangerous. I'm afraid of what might happen. I don't want to get to know them. I can't believe they do those kind of things, and I don't want them in my life at all. We, uh, we have had the opportunity here over the last few weeks um, that my wife has made a friend at the gym. She goes regularly. She's met this young lady there, and we have come to find out that this young lady has a wife. And um, they're raising a little kid that just happens to be our son's age. And we know that um, homosexuality isn't something that God says is permissible. And yet we have our friend, we call her special friend, Brooke, um, that is a homosexual. And that we are beginning the process of getting to know. And I have no idea where this goes. It is not normal for us. It is not comfortable for us. It raises up a whole list of questions that we now have to think through. Like, can our son go over to their house? Not sure if I'm comfortable with that. How does this play out as we get to know them? And where do we enter into with the gospel without just being offended or offensive unnecessarily? 
as we begin to wrestle through this, if our friend Brooke gets saved, which we are praying for, what does that mean for her and her wife and their family? And how do we begin to unpack this? As Becca invites her to come to the park with some of the other young ladies from church, how much do we need to let all the young ladies from church into the loop on so they don't say something really rude or offensive and we don't offend them while we're there? There's a whole lot of questions I'd rather not answer. It would be easier, it would be simpler to just avoid all together. And yet that's not what the gospel has called us to. There is a danger as we talk about the people that we interact with that we are too narrow, that we're unwilling to enter into the mess, that we're unwilling to get our hands dirty and to see what happens, unwilling to expose ourselves or our kids to things that we know don't honor the Lord. And yet we're called to be ministers of the gospel. We're called to risk for the sake of the gospel. And so I'd urge you on one hand, don't be too narrow. Begin to wrestle through as we deal with people, how do we love and how do we care for them? But the flip side of that, the other side that we're trying to avoid is that we're too comfortable with people that don't love the Lord. 1 John 1.4 tells us that we have fellowship with one another because we have fellowship with God. That our friendship with one another is not based on our affinity groups. It's not based on the fact we like the same team or we live in the same area or we go out and do the same things together or our kids happen to be at the gym together. Our fellowship with one another is based on the fact that we have fellowship with God. It's why the church is glorious, right? Look around this room. The diversity that is represented here. And yet we're united because of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's our common ground. It's why we can show up from Simeon. You don't just throw us out. right? We're here together and we actually have unity, but the world is not the church. And unbelievers are not the church. And there has to be a difference in our relationship. Listen, we love people that don't know the Lord. We want to serve them. We want to minister to them. We want to communicate the gospel to them. We want to be thoughtful about how we interact with them. But that interaction has an end goal. And it's not just to hang out as friends. Your best friend needs to be a solid believer. You need people in your life that will influence you towards relationship with the Lord, that will help you grow in your blamelessness, that will help you walk forward in integrity, that are after the same things in life that you are. There are no fence sitters in this world. People are either for Christ or they are against Christ. Don't create a third category of safe people that don't love Jesus. People either love Jesus or they need to love Jesus and that's what we're helping them do. And so the aim this morning as we walk through this particular set of verses is we want to split the middle on those two things. We want to walk wisely and discerningly. We want opportunity to reach out and to evangelize and get to know people and we need to do that. But we need to be careful about who our inner circle of intimate friends are and who is influencing us that is pursuing a different thing in life than we do. And this is what David really hammers on here in Psalm 101. We need to know who to avoid. Three of these verses, verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8, all talk about who David will avoid. In fact, he's, he uses stronger language than that. This is the group that David will destroy he will not endure them. He will not allow them to dwell in his house. He will not allow them to continue before his eyes. He will cut them off. This is not politically correct language. David is serious about walking with the Lord. He knows it will be his downfall if he doesn't. And therefore, he's careful about who he interacts with and who he spends his time with. We need to be aware of who we need to avoid. We need to be cognizant about the people that we are around and who we are letting into those intimate places in our life of how we're getting to know them. And please, reach out to your unsaved people that God has brought into your life. Love them, serve them, care for them, but recognize they are fundamentally after something different in life that you, than you are. We need to be aware of that as we move into relationship with them. Be careful, be wise, be discerning, and we need to be there by the same token, really thoughtful about who we seek to acquire as our friends. Look at verse 6. David says, I will look with favor 
on the faithful of the land. It's the faithful ones that I'm after. Those who are faithful to the Lord. That they may dwell with me. That that he who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. There is an appropriate type of looking out for good friends. Of looking out for people that you can be close to. We want to intentionally seek out those who are pursuing the Lord in the same way that we are. We all need mature believers in our life. It's the beauty of the church, right? Keep coming on Sunday. Keep being together. Keep seeking opportunity to fellowship together and to spur one another on towards love and good deeds that we might grow together because these are the people God has placed in our life for those purposes. We want to continue to labor in evangelism. I know that's been a focus for Eric and I, I want to do nothing but affirm that but recognize as we do that the necessity of having friends that are helping us continue to pursue the Lord and that can walk forward together and hold us accountable to the things that God has called us to so that we would not just grow in our faith, but that we would continue to the end in our faith, that we would walk with the Lord all of our days. Be careful of those that we are cultivating relationships with. And so I just encourage you this morning, um, regardless of what you're going through, and I don't know all of the situations and circumstances, but I know life can be difficult. I know it can be hard. We want to grasp the process of the gospel. We want to remember who God is and what he has done for us. We need to commit ourselves to honoring the Lord, even when it's difficult, that we would walk forward in integrity And that we would guard ourselves as we think about the future of keeping ourselves out of situations where we're going to stumble and we're going to fall back into a relationship with the Lord that's not good and not healthy. Amen? All right, let me pray for us today and then I think we got one more song. Heavenly Father, we are um, thankful for your steadfast love and for your justice. Lord, I am so um, deeply grateful that you loved me despite the fact that I was an enemy of yours, despite the fact that I was not seeking to love you or to serve you in any way, and yet you were gracious to me. Lord, you are gracious to us. We are so thankful for your son and for what it means to be moved from darkness to light, to be moved from lack of fellowship with you to the prospect of eternity with you. Lord, we long for that day, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would together continue to move forward, that we would continue in relationship with you, that you would continue the work of sanctification in our hearts and in our lives, that we might not walk with you just for this season of life, but that we might walk with you for all of our lives, that we would endure till the end together, and Lord, that we would not be too discouraged or disheartened by the hardship and the struggle along the way, but Lord, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would come alongside one another and encourage one another to keep going because you are worth it. And we love you and we praise you for that. In your name we pray, amen.